Good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Boker. I'll be reading Second Peter, chapter three, verses one through ten. <clears throat> this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water, out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is a, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but His patience towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray. Father, we uh, praise you. Ask God that you'd have your way with us here this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, convict us of sin and righteousness, that we would be encouraged um, by... um, the reminder that, um, Lord Jesus, you took um, all of our sin upon yourself. And uh, Lord, I pray that we'd be ones that leave here just desiring um, to, um, to live lives in joyful obedience to your good and perfect world, not to gain anything, but because we are already possessors of everything in Christ Jesus. And I just pray for that you would uh, have your way with each of us, God, that you'd be glorified, that we'd be edified. And God's people said... Amen. Just a, a little light section of scripture today. Uh, so as a reminder, particularly if you're new with us here today, we, we didn't pick this. Um, we're teaching through the book of Second Peter, and this is what the Lord has for us today. Um, this is his word. Um, it is good for teaching, rebuke, and correction. It's uh, good for our encouragement, and, um, and every bit of it is, is uh, from the mouth of God. So, um, so I pray that you'd be encouraged. I pray that God would uh, give me uh, the ability to speak it clearly. Let me ask you, how many of you are true Cubs fans? <laughs> I mean, really, like true Cubs fans. Anybody, there's one back there. Anybody else? It's an honest group, right? Where? One back there? Well, so what makes up a true fan, a true Cubs fan? I mean, it's, it's probably, by definition, it's somebody who's been waiting since birth uh, for the Cubs to win. Waiting is hard. 
Isn't it, Cubs fans? Waiting is hard, especially when you don't know the future. I've got my, my son-in-law, Jared, is a big Cubs fan. And him and, and uh, his wife, my daughter, bought tickets to Chicago a couple of weeks before they knew that Chicago would be in the National Championship Series. They didn't have tickets to the game. They just wanted, he just wanted to be in Wrigleyville for, um, for, that, for that deal. And he's a, he's a guy that he, he sweats, he walks, he wrings his hands when the Cubs are playing. And he's been a fan from, from day one. He he's, comes about it honestly. Have you ever waited north of here for the train to go across 392? They can't make up its mind. And it's going like a half mile an hour, right? It goes right, and it goes left, it goes right. And there's been so many times where I've make, made a, a, a U-turn and went down Walnut. When Nancy and I go to Denver uh, between 4 and 6, any day of the week, five days of the week, going south, have you done that recently? It's a crawl. I mean, the traffic is stopped. So I, I get on the frontage road more times than not because I'd rather be moving than, than like, stopped. And oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, every time when I get on the frontage road, I'll pick out a truck, a semi-truck, and uh, I'll say, honey, just watch that truck, okay? Because I'm going to beat it. Watch that truck, and I'll go, you know, you go past Johnson's Corner, you go past Berthet, and you finally get back on. A couple times, in fact, twice in the last few weeks, I've, I've hung a right over, west over the top of I-25 to the same exit. There's, there's, you can't get on I-25. I've done it twice. So I take, make a U-turn there, get back on the front of the road, screw it down, here comes a truck. Like, I'm not going to let it beat me. And sometimes I win, sometimes I don't, but, but I'd rather be moving than standing still. I'd rather be um, moving with, with some kind of illusion that I might beat the truck than just standing there in traffic. It's easier for me to wait when I know there is a uh, sure or at least hope for end to my waiting. It's easy for my waiting. I'll give me an example. My, my, my son Joey and his wife Brittany, um, they're not coming in for Thanksgiving. And I don't know when they're coming in next. I know we'll see them, God willing, at some point, but I'm waiting for them without knowing when I'm going to get to see them, and it's hard. If they were coming in on Thanksgiving, it would still be hard, but at least I would know I'd have something to look forward to, right? you picture that? How are you waiting, and what enables you to wait patiently in any, in any, uh, in any area? Some of you are in the midst of trials, financial difficulty. Some of you have... Um, Children that may not be saved, children that may be uh, sick. And sometimes our waiting is for a trial like that or a series of trials to end and for better days to begin. Sometimes our waiting is something we just simply long for, something, something good. There's not necessarily anything bad going on, but we long for something better to be going on. And patient waiting can be hard. And I think waiting is easiest when we have assurance of what's to come. The author of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Does anybody know what um, International Observance Day it is today? It's, it's, I can't call it a holiday, but it's something that, that uh, Christians observe. Anything? Yes. And you know that because you told me. <laughs> and I know it because I heard it from you. Uh, this, is, uh, this is International uh, Pray for the Persecuted Church Day. It's, it's November 6th and November 13th, actually. There's two. And, um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time praying for the persecuted church. There are, there are brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world that, um, that are being beheaded, 
that are being crucified, uh, they're being blown up, they're being um, driven out of their homelands. And uh, these, are, these, are, these, are, these are our family, actually, as God would call them our family. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, same father, um, that we, we don't know their names. And there's a, there's a map up here, and I wanted to, it's, uh, in the dark areas are places where there is severe persecution. Um, the, the lighter orange, the, the orange area, the brown, whatever color that is, there's, there's really not any persecution. You look at America over there, um, there's no real persecution in America. Um, if you see the lighter color, the kind of the, the aqua blue, if that's the right color, I'm kind of colorblind. But um, Nigeria, which is, a, which is a country that we invest in heavily. We've invested in relationally. We've invested uh, monetarily. And it's a place that um, has half Christians, half Muslim, but it's, one of, it's, still, it's still one of the most persecuted uh, places on the planet because of that, of that tension uh, between Christians and, um, and Muslims. So today I want to start this service by praying for those whom we're, whom we're related to, um, even though we've never met them. So would you just uh, bow with me and we'll just uh, pray now. God, I, uh, Lord, as I have um, contemplated uh, the plight of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ um, in every corner of this world, who are suffering for their faith. Not just losing friendships, but losing sons and daughters, losing spouses, losing loved ones, losing their own lives because of their faith in the one true God. And Lord, I thank you that for the truth of what we're learning here in Scripture in 2 Peter, that uh, that we live in a corrupt and wicked world. We, um, those that know you, uh, Lord, that we have, we have been delivered from darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of your beloved son. And we are in your kingdom where we'll stay forever, but we're in your already but not yet kingdom. Lord, we, we thank you that you have uh, conquered the power of sin and Satan and death for those who know you. But until you come to rescue us, there's going to continue to be persecution. There's going to continue to be martyrdom. There's going to continue to be people that are tortured and killed for your namesake. And Lord, we know from uh, Acts chapter 4 that... Um, that it says that you appointed Herod and you appointed Pilate to kill your son Jesus. And Lord, we don't fully understand what you're doing, but we know that you use um, uh, evil regimes to lead people into your kingdom. And so Lord, we want to care about um, what you care about. And God, we pray that you would have mercy on these uh, and these brothers and sisters that are being persecuted around the world. God, would you bring them a temporal relief if you'd be so kind? But God, I pray that in the midst of their suffering, they would not tuck tail and run. But I pray, God, that they would turn and, and be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we pray for the persecuted church, we would be reminded that this, uh, this uh, puny little election that gets us upset... Um, is nothing in comparison to what brothers and sisters are experiencing all over the globe where they're losing their lives. 
And I pray, God, that you would prepare us in this country for suffering. We don't invite it. We don't ask for it. But God, we ask that you would just have your way with us. And I pray that we would be bold in our testimony and that we would stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what you bring. So God, have mercy. Have mercy on our brothers and sisters, our extended family, that one day we will meet in, in glory. And I pray, God, that you would use their testimony to, to bring many people into your kingdom. We thank you that you hear our prayer. We thank you that you are at work in every corner of this earth. And we thank you that you will return one day to rescue your own and to judge the living and the dead. And God's people said, amen. You folks are lucky you weren't in the first service because I was a crying, sniveling mess. And you got the leftovers in my nose and in my sweaty armpits. TMI, right? <laughs> this little section of scripture that we're in today, chapter two, uh, chapter three of Second Peter, verses one through ten, is really an early Advent message. Advent men, means waiting or to wait. As Peter reminds Christians, you and I, living in this corrupt and broken world, to stand firm on God's promises that He will one day rescue His own and judge the ungodly. In verses one and two. Peter reminds us that this is his second letter to the same people. Second letter to the same churches. People whom he refers to as his beloved. And Peter may not even know these people. Just like we don't know the persecuted Christians around the country. But he has a, around the world, but he has a deep love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. His aim in his first letter and his aim in this letter is to stir up, he says in verses 1 and 2, to stir up the sincere minds of the beloved saints by way of reminder. And to stir up means to awaken. That Peter wants to, wherever you're at in your journey, he wants to awaken you today. It's like an alarm clock that goes off that awakens by way of reminder that it's time to get up. And there's two things that he wants to remind us of. There's two things that he wants to awaken us to. And the first one is the predictions of the holy prophets that I'll explain in a minute. And the second thing is he wants to awaken us to the commandment of the Lord spoken through the apostles. And Peter knows that even those with a sincere mind and a desire to walk by faith in obedience to the Lord need to be stirred up or awaken to remember these two things. Peter has reminded us in this second letter of the importance of not only knowing the truth of God's word, but living in accordance or in obedience to the truth of God's word. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, he exhorted us to pay attention to God's word as a lamp shining in a dark place. We live in a dark place. Yeah, there's so many blessings. We just got to we just got to uh, receive some of the greatest blessings up here in this stage a little while ago, amen? But we live in a dark place. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is full of corruption. And he says that it's his word that will bring light to this dark world. It's his word that will protect us and comfort us and direct us. So let's look at these two reminders that he wants to awaken us with. The first one is the predictions of the holy prophets. 
He wants to awaken us with a reminder of the warnings given by the Old Testament prophets regarding his coming judgment. He will return to judge the living and the dead. And secondly, he wants to remind us of the commandment of the Lord. And I believe that that commandment that he's referring to is the commandment to walk in obedience to God's good commands. So Peter gives all Christians a wake-up call, and he reminds us of these two twin truths, that Jesus will return and we're to live our lives in obedience to his good and perfect word until he returns to rescue us and to judge the world. In verses 3 and 4, he gives us the reason for this wake-up call. He says, false teachers will refute the Lord's command and the prophet's predictions. He says, knowing this, first of all, verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers or the prophets fell asleep or died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, they say. In the last days, false teachers will come and mock our obedient waiting. It's important to remember that this letter was written 2,000 years ago, and it was written only 30 years after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he refers to the last days. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. The last days is the gap of time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension until when he comes back again. That's the last days. So you don't have to look for the last days. You don't have to look for signs and wonders, um, signs of war and, and flood and calamity that we live in the last days, and the last days have been here for 2,000 years. So he doesn't tell us to look for signs and wonders of when he comes back, as you're going to see in a while here. He says that he's going to return as a thief comes in the night. So Peter warns us that in the last days in which we live, false teachers will scoff at the thought of Jesus' second coming. And they will scoff at the notion of Christians living their lives in submission to God's words. These scoffers follow their own sinful desires and they want to encourage us and entice us and to bait us to live for our own sinful desires. And these teachers act the same way Satan did. Satan scoffed at our first parents. They said, surely God would not do this to you. God wants to withhold something from you. So Peter wants to remind his audience, first century audience and us today, of the authentic truth so that we will know the counterfeit truth after he's gone. Because scoffers will come in and they will entice or bait unsteady souls, those that are not grounded in God's word, they will bait and entice us with a counterfeit truth that will appeal to our fleshly desires. Remember what their message is? Their message is one of licentiousness. Licentiousness is the opposite of legalism. Licentiousness means that you can go live any way you want to live as a Christian. That you're saved by grace, but now you can go live your life any way you want. And this message of preaching is a message of go ahead and live your life as you please. Enjoy your salvation by living any way you please. They say there hasn't been any kind of final judgment as the prophets predicted and the apostles promised. The fathers of the faith, the prophets, have gone many, many years. They've been gone many, many years. And nothing has changed. So live and let live. You ever heard that? Live and let live. There's no need to live a life according to the law or God's word. Join us. Be free. You're not hurting anybody. 
These scoffers are tired of waiting for God's promised return, and now they falsely believe and teach that there will be no judgment, which means there will be no hell. And since there's not going to be a judgment, and there's not going to be a hell, we can go, on, go ahead living any way we choose. So Peter's encouragement is for us to know and remember the ultimate truth, the genuine truth, so that we can recognize the lies which are a counterfeit truth. He's writing to people he loves, sincere Christians like you and I. These sincere Christians like you and I may have known the truth and they may have been established or rooted in the truth, but apparently they've gotten lazy and now false teachers are trying to slip in a counterfeit truth. And Peter wants us to be able to recognize the counterfeit truth. How? By awakening in us to remember and study the authentic truth. Let me give you an example by looking at the, at the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mounties. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police train their people, their new recruits, to, uh, to be able to identify counterfeit currency. They train them to do that. And here's, here's how they do that. The, the trainees never see a counterfeit bill. In, in this training, they never bring false currency in to show them. They only give them the, a $10 bill, an authentic bill, and they have them study that. Every fiber in it. Hold it up to the light. Um, look at it, feel it, and they study it so that, so that anything that does not measure up to this authentic $10 bill, it can be readily identified as counterfeit. You see, folks, the more intimately you are aware of the genuine article, the easier it is to recognize the fake. It's good in our culture of many false religions and false gods to understand what's false about it. But the best way to identify falsehood is to study the real thing. So instead of spending a ton of time studying what um, uh, the, the fallacies that LDS believe or the fallacies that Muslim believe, that's good, it's not a bad endeavor, but let's study the truth of God's word. Let's get to know the genuine article so well that we can identify the counterfeit when we hear it, when we see it, when we read it when it's preached to us. So Peter wants to awaken us to remember and study the authentic truth. If we're not stirred consistently, if we're not awakened consistently to know and remember these twin truths, we can start to doubt God's promises. We can lose hope. And worse, we can slide into licentious living. In verses 5 and 6, these scoffers choose to be led by their feelings and stand on relative truth rather than standing on the truth of God's eternal word. They deliberately, it says in the text, they deliberately overlook this one fact. They choose to forget that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. God spoke it into existence and, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water, and it perished. He says, don't overlook this one fact. And I, I don't know that there's actually one fact there. It's like one big long fact. And I put it in my own words. Here's the fact that I believe that Peter wants us to, to hear today. This one fact that God is good, he's just, and he's decisive, and he will act in accordance to his will and his promises in his perfect timing. God is good, he's just, he's decisive. 
He will act in accordance to his will and his promises in his perfect timing. God is the one who spoke the world into existence and formed it out of water. And he's also the one that spoke his wrath upon the world where only eight people were saved. In chapter 2, verse 5, we were reminded that God preserved Noah and seven others, not because they had a righteousness of their own, but because they had faith in a righteousness of God. We know from Genesis 9 and 1 Peter that, that it was by an ark, it was by a boat that the eight were brought safely through the water. And then an ark, if you remember, is a picture of Jesus. That, that salvation from God's ultimate ju- justice is only in the ark of Jesus. That safety from God's judgment is only in Christ. That, there's, that you can't be good enough. But it's only in Christ Jesus. And after God's judgment on the ungodly and saving the eight, he what? He put a rainbow out. And that rainbow was his promise that he would never again destroy the earth by water. But it says in verse 7, by the same word that he created, by the same word that he caused the waters to come up from below and come down from top, by that same word he is patiently keeping and sustaining all of creation together. But one day he will come to judge and destroy the ungodly, not by water, but by fire. Verse 7 says this, but by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. One commentator said this, In the present universe, the heavens are full of stars, comets, and asteroids. The core of the earth is also filled with flaming, boiling, liquid lake of fire, the temperature of which is 12,400 degrees Fahrenheit. The human race is separated from the fiery core of the earth by by only a thin 10-mile crust. Far more than that, the whole of creation is a potential firebomb due to its atomic structure. Is man from atoms creates destructive bombs that burn a path of death, so God can disintegrate the whole universe in an explosion of atomic energy. The earth waits for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men that is being stored up and will surely come. A reminder, though, that, that the godly will not be present on earth when God speaks into existence this judgment by fire. Paul says it in a different way. He describes Jesus' second coming in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 12. He says, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these false teachers are preaching a gospel of licentiousness. They're preaching a gospel of grace, but they're saying that you can know Jesus without following Jesus. And you cannot know Jesus without following him. And what we're not talking about is perfection here. We're talking about direction. That once we put faith and trust in Jesus... We repent. And the repentance is a result of salvation, not the cause of salvation, but we repent and we follow Jesus instead of our own ways. 
The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and a flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These scoffing false teachers overlooked the facts and chose to live in accordance to their own sinful desires rather than standing on God's word and patiently and obediently waiting for his return. Their choice to deliberately teach and live this way has eternal consequences. In verse 8 he says, don't, Christians, don't overlook this one fact now. He says, don't make this mistake, beloved. Don't ignore this one fact. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Here Peter's answering the criticism of Jesus' critics that say that, that his second coming has been delayed so long that he must not be coming back at all. It may seem slow to you, but it's not slow on God's watch and God's calendar. Since God is immortal... He doesn't age. And he sees all of history with a glance, clearly. He doesn't experience time in the way we do. And one day he's going to come back. And he's going to say, my, how time has flown. It seems like I was just here yesterday. And to him, it was like yesterday. It was two days ago in his economy. But 2,000 years for us. In verse 9, so he will fulfill his promise. For Peter's original audience, it had been only 30 years since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's been 2,000 for us, and these are the last days. And I don't know if the last days are going to last another 30 years or another 2,000 years. With the trajectory of our earth, I hope it's not another 2,000 years. Who knows what, we're, what, what we have in store. In verse 9, it's, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it's important for us to identify here who the you and the any and the all are in verse 9. Who's Peter writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. Peter is writing to Christians and the, the any and the you and the all describes all who the Father will save. In John 10, verse 16, he says this. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Peter's writing to Christians. And the any and the all and the you describe to those whom he has called. His return is not slow because he doesn't care. It's not a slow return because he doesn't care about what's going on in the world. He cares about the pain and suffering. He cares about the wickedness. He cares about your plight. But he cares mostly about eternal suffering. 
He's being patient because his saving work is not complete. He is patient and is withholding judgment so that many more of his elect can reach repentance and enter the ark of salvation before the door closes once and for all on his second coming. Next week, we get to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. We get to talk about our heavenly home and our eternal home. But that's not what we've got in the passage today. It says he's not slow to fulfill his promises. We count slowness. This life is truly a dot on the line of eternity. And we think sometimes, I know in my 50s, I feel like I'm going to live forever. And I am at the tail end of my life. Don't like say anything like, yeah, you look it too. <laughs> I'm at the tail end. This life, yes, this life is not going to uh, last forever. It's a, it's a dot on the line of eternity. And these false teachers are encouraging Christians to live as if this is all there is. Peter these, these false teachers are telling us that we are free. We are free to live any way we want. And that, but, but we're not. We are free. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the, the power of Satan. We're free from death. But we're not free to live our life in any way we choose. Today our passage encourages us to remember God's command for all to repent and his promise to return. He will patiently endure our sin and the sins of the world because he wants to get all of his sheep into the ark of salvation before he destroys the earth and all the ungodly in it. And in verse 10 it says, His return will come when you least expect it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. He will come suddenly and he will come unexpectedly. The door of the ark of salvation will slam shut one final time. And those who are truly his will be rescued and those who are not will be punished. They'll be punished for the rest of eternity. Brothers and sisters, he is urging us that we constantly be stirred up or awakened by the reminder of these two truths that he will come again. And then in the meantime, we're to live obedient, patient, hopeful lives that he will rescue us. As I was pondering this scripture and I asked the question, so what? What does this mean for me and you on Monday morning? This is a passage, I believe, that should motivate us to work. Not work to earn anything, but kingdom work because we already possess everything. A work that is in response to everything that we already possess in God's kingdom. He has given you and I all the resources we need to live this life and to live it in a godly manner. We know that from chapter 1 in 2 Peter. There's a coming day where God will rescue his own from the wickedness and corruption of this world. But in the meantime, he has left you and I here 
for only only one uh, one of two possible reasons. One of two possible reasons. If you're not the Lord's yet, He's being patient with you. Don't wait. Put your faith and trust in His shed blood on the cross for the remission of your sins. The second possibility is is that He has left you here to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only news that will get people in the ark and that will save them from the penalty and the power of their sins. There's no other reason. He hasn't saved you and me to simply enjoy our salvation. We should. He has come to give us life and life abundantly. We should be the most joyful, happy in Christ people on the planet. But we will never be more joyful and we will never be more happy until one day we are in heaven where there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, and there's no more death. So what's the call here? The call is to repent and believe if you haven't done it already. Because he will return as a thief in the night. And it will be the last chance. And if you know Jesus, the clock is ticking. The work of salvation is not ours. But the glorious privilege to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that can set the captives free is our responsibility and our privilege. And I want to say this, all sin will be punished and judged. My sin and your sin, if you know Jesus Christ, has been judged and has been punished at Calvary. That he who knew no sin became your sin so that you might become the righteousness of Christ. If you don't know Jesus, your sin will be punished. And it will be punished when he returns to judge the living and the dead. So we get to uh, celebrate Calvary. We get to celebrate as Christians what Christ accomplished on that cross. And even before that, we get to remember that he came. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But because of you, because of his love for you, he emptied himself. And he became a man born in a manger. He became a servant who was obedient, obedient to, to death, even death on the cross. And then he took the full wrath of the Father that you and I deserve because of our sinfulness. And he paid the price for us. So that every past, present, and future sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. So in the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. He said, eat it in remembrance of me. Then afterwards he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Drink as often as you remember me. This sacrament of communion that we've been celebrating every week, the last six or seven weeks, every month before that, 
This is a sacred time for those whose sins have been forgiven because of faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, I, I would ask you not to come up and participate. This is, the, this is the table for believers. If you are here with us and you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, only God knows your heart. And I would just say this, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. You do not need to believe before you belong in this place. But God wants you to believe so that you can belong to his eternal kingdom.